Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Billionaires are out in force in the 2020 presidential race. Although we can't be sure, Donald Trump may be a billionaire and the wealthiest president in U.S. history. Former Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz ended and left the race after complaining about he and other billionaires are treated. Hedge fund billionaire Tom Steyer is still running for the Democratic nomination, but the biggest player is Michael Bloomberg. Although most of the candidates are millionaires with $55 billion, he's worth more than all the other presidential candidates combined. What happens when the 0.1% holds so much power? What does it mean for the average worker? Can the super-rich dictate how we live? Bob Henley has looked into these and related questions of American politics uh, and uh, economics and policy for Public Radio, Salon, the chief leader, and other news organizations. And I'm very pleased to welcome him back to our show now to discuss politics and the influence of the super-rich. Hi, Bob. Happy New Year, Leonard. Thank you. Thanks for having me back. It's already a troubled New Year. Yes, it is. Before we get to Mike Bloomberg, uh, the possibility of war with Iran is topping the news. In, in a recent essay published by Inside New Jersey and Salon, you looked at how U.S. conflicts may evolve in, in 2020. You write, and you wrote that before the U.S. killed the, the Iranian Major General uh, Qasim Suleiman. How might that attack affect U.S. military entanglements? Well, what we're seeing right now is the Iraqi parliament um, uh, wanting the United States to leave. We are seeing a situation— And the where, United States is refusing. <coughs> Can we just right, refuse? He's digging in, and then uh, President uh, Trump is threatening sanctions against Iraq. Uh, it's really hard to sum it all up. But I know we have some time, but in Iran, we are in a situation where prior to this assassination, extra-legal assassination— uh, what was happening within Iraq, uh, Iran rather, was the rise of um, uh, young people uh, looking for a kind of secular return to secular government, uh, a, a kind of, uh, if you will, important uh, uh, inflection point where the old guard uh, that has had this very hostile stance towards the United States was really feeling pressure to embrace a new model in the 21st century. In a stroke with that drone strike, what... Uh, Trump did was uh, really undercut the opposition that we say we're trying to support in Iran. And at the same time, even within Iraq, there were people who were resisting to the uh, the co-option by Iran that's been going on for quite a while. And even in, in Iraq, those folks that were pushing back against uh, overreach by Iran were undercut. So what Donald Trump has done is put us on a conveyor belt to war, and I believe that this is kind of what has been his intention and has been, really, since he walked away from the multilateral agreement that President Obama put together to try to hold down the nuclear program. He's threatening to bomb cultural sites in Iran, which would be against international law. Well, not only that, it also should be an important reference point for people paying attention to what's going on. This mirrors the behavior of the Taliban who actually acted out and attacked ancient Hindu sites, world treasures, uh, and that, you know, was considered as a warning sign that they were coming for the tower. So, in essence, what's happened because of this prolonged 
a psychotic military stance is now we have fully taken on the persona of the terrorist and the aggressor that we were supposedly fighting. In essence, we are we went on a war against terrorism, and now we've proliferated, and it's consumed the American soul. Some are seeing this also as uh, part of a, the presidential campaign. Uh, but uh, And impeachment. Let's not forget that, as Elizabeth Senator Warren said over the weekend, it does change the narrative, which is also a top Trump priority. And haven't both Republicans and many Democrats taken hawkish positions on Iran and the Middle East? Well, a lot of this goes back to the fact that very early on, I mean, we have to look at uh, Netanyahu and, and his position in Israel, and he's been trying to drive the United States to a deeper and deeper entanglement in fighting Iran. And so the United States for a long time has had other agendas other than American public interests that were driven by Saudi interests and interests in Israel. Uh, the U.S. maintains nearly 800 military bases in more than 70 countries. Right. We just learned about something that happened in Kenya. Have some American conflicts never appeared on the radar or the Absolutely. news media? Absolutely. The best case uh, of the uh, U.S. Senate uh, losing track of their fundamental constitutional responsibility of oversight was what happened in Niger a while back. And uh, this was when a number of forward-deployed American troops uh, were ambushed and killed. And at that point, to his credit, John, Senator uh, John McCain um, admitted he had no idea they were there. What's happened over the last 18 years is that the military machine of the United States has been on autopilot. And so anyone who comes down rightfully on President Trump for this abuse of power and this warmongering has to also circle back and look at the dereliction of duty and the MIA status of Congress for the last 18 years. There are also conflicts that don't directly involve the United States, like the one between Russia and Ukraine. Is debate over conflicts like Russia and Ukraine going any further than what's related to the impeachment proceedings? I, I think what's happened now is that it's very difficult for the media machine as it exists today to function on more than a top-line story. And so what happens is all these issues that are hot wars are all of a sudden relegated to the back pages. And then the dominant narrative becomes the fixation on what the big dogs do. And that's, that creates a tremendous opportunity because it has all kinds of voids are created that someone like Putin can exploit. We expect Democrats and Republicans to take differing positions, but aren't there divides within the parties, especially the Democrats, uh, across generations uh, and according to wealth? I think that one of the things that is, and I did something about this this morning, if you look at the folks who are of a generation that support and find themselves comfortable with Vice President Biden, um, they and they there's a lot of especially online and social media, there's a lot of derision of um, Alexandria uh, Ocasio Cortez, that younger faction, by these older folks who accuse them of being you know Marxist, too radical. And it, it's really a, a lack of conversation with that younger generation. And I've been blessed by having three daughters in that world, that period of time. And, and when we sit and listen, listen to these young people, and it's very important to say listen, we'll understand that their young lives have been bookended by what? 9-11 and the Great Recession. And they see 
a connection between our addiction to militarism, much like Martin Luther King, and actual wealth and quality they're living with. And that's the issue here is that this younger generation we know are deferring having children, um, uh, forming households, uh, making long-term financial commitments because they can't. Because what's actually happened is that we have given a blank check to the military on borrowed money, hundreds of billions, trillions of dollars, bailed out Wall Street and put $1.7 trillion of debt on the new generation. That's why they don't think capitalism works, for, because for them it doesn't. And then we take some of that money from the military and put it into building a wall. And more importantly, I think that this is uh, <clears throat> excuse me, one of the things, the underlying connection with all these stories, and that's why I think it's great to be on this air, because we don't get to make these connections. Especially we just we hear the same three news <laughs> stories again and right. again and again. Right, and there's and no, there's so much else going on. In right. some cases, they're connected to more exactly. important things. And that and that's the key thing here is that to take back the narrative so that we can bring some sanity to this planet, we have to start connecting stories. And 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 they are there's a through line. If you look at the issue of militarism, if you look at the issue of health care, you can pick any issue, and the way that it's working itself through in 21st century late-stage vulture capitalism is actually driving wealth inequality and further undermining the planet in terms of global warming. They are all connected. Pete Buttigieg may be the least wealthy of the remaining Democratic candidates, but he's among uh, the ones most preferred by Wall Street. Why do you think that is? There was a very interesting piece that was in the Sunday Times related to this under the style section where it described his kind of ambivalence but initial tango, a hesitant tango with great wealth. And th this is the, you know, he had apparently by some uh, observations a great moment when um, Elizabeth Warren tried to check him on this because apparently he had uh, some amazing uh, fundraiser in some wine cavern. Uh, with crystals and you know, and he at that time uh, seemed have to win. Have you ever been invited to a wine cave? <clears throat> I, I have not. Me neither. Um, I've driven by them. Um, <laughs> I've actually worked in a vineyard. Uh -huh. I've done actually built a vineyard, but I have not been uh -huh. invited to sit down in a wine cave. But the thing about um, uh, Mayor Pete is that. He's in a situation now where he does project kind of like JFK. He does have uh, this authentic thing of being self-made. But there's no doubt that his period of time in McKinsey as a, as a corporatist has colored the way he sees the world. And so he is uh, in this situation right now where I, I think he's kind of ahead of himself. I don't see him. I mean, I could be wrong that he's going all the way. But uh, he has this, again, like Biden, this kind of failure to see, even though he says he's you know has student debt, the real crisis that's at hand in America for young people. When Michael Bloomberg first ran for mayor, we often heard the line that he'd be good at governing because he was a successful businessman. Uh, do Americans still buy that line? Because we heard the same thing when Donald Trump was running for president, although. Uh, we're still not sure whether Donald Trump was a successful businessman. A lot of this goes back to the fact that the media had hardwired in them a perception of Donald Trump as a successful businessman, and that was the function of the tabloids and TV production. When it, I think Michael Bloomberg would say now that he's a legitimate businessman. Did he run that, the city like a business? <clears throat> he did, but um, there was uh, it was a mixed record in the sense – I mean, there were some things that he did that were visionary. One example would be in public health – uh, against all 
predictions, he uh, he stood up against the idea of smoking in restaurants and bars. And people predicted, I covered these stories for WNYC, that this would be the end of the restaurant trade. And in point of fact, it turned out to be a boon for it and became a global standard. By the same token, there were many instances where he uh, delegated responsibility. I can think of a number of examples, one being the 911 emergency system, which came up so short on 9-11, okay? Mm -hmm. And that turned it uh, into a major boondoggle. It spent hundreds of millions of dollars. He had this near-religious faith in outside contractors. You know, there was this certain sense that, you know, but the private sector, that's where we can count on people. And yet, as in the case of City Time, this is an ironic case, the largest municipal fraud these people got over for hundreds of millions of dollars. This was supposed to be a timekeeping system that was going to keep track of municipal civil servants who are always trying to steal their time. And it turned out that because they passed over people who are capable of doing this work in the civil service, honest individuals, and gave it to outside contractors, that this uh, military contractor ripped the city off for hundreds of millions of dollars on his watch. He also encouraged people to go back downtown after 9-11. Some of them are now suffering uh, right. uh, health consequences. And in some cases, it was even city agencies that were <clears throat> reopening downtown. Well, we do have to go back to that narrative. And this is this is another thing that comes up on this station. You don't hear other places. Is the, the narrative that we lived as people who were working and living in this area at the time. Well, because he's bragging about <clears throat> the fact that he did so much after 9 And again, this has to do with something that we've, I've identified. There's a distortion factor. When you see people rise to power in New York City, and then take it national, and I can think of three examples, Rudy Giuliani, Donald Trump, and Michael Bloomberg. Their publicity and their tabloid persona then actually becomes this national reputation. And the thing that we live with and are aware of as New Yorkers is that these are false images. So in the case of Trump, everybody who was working with the Village Voice at the time, uh, uh, Tim O'Brien at the time was working for Wayne Barrett, uh, were all young people. Everybody knew that Donald Trump was a phony. Uh, to Tim's credit, he he went up against him in that breakthrough book that kind of said the emperor didn't have any clothes and, and uh, Trump was not a billionaire. Uh, we knew he was using um, you know Polish workers. He was exploiting workers. We knew that he was a fake, phony fraud. However, he managed to skip over our understanding through the way he was marketed in The Apprentice to become this global figure. Giuliani's done the same thing in terms of how people here in the civil service were in the front lines of 9-11. Exactly. And we've covered that ground about the faulty fire radios and how the International Association of Firefighters blames Giuliani for the death of 120 firefighters who did not hear the uh, the May Day to leave the building because of the substandard radios that Giuliani had provided. So they all came from the Ukraine. <laughs> well, no, no, I won't go there. <laughs> but I mean, in terms of Bloomberg, one of the things that I think is important here is that one of the things he hasn't done, and I, I think it has to be pressed, he, he never really disclosed what he paid in federal taxes. He did this kind of charade every year where under the conflict of interest law, he had to provide a list of companies that he had material control over and the scale of his fortune, but nothing about what he actually paid. So I think that's still, and that's one of the problems with the president of Donald Trump in a, in a, in a world where Donald Trump hadn't succeeded in setting this precedent of not providing his taxes, Bloomberg would have to provide it. So that's something I think that the media needs to press uh, Bloomberg on if he really wants to set up this counter narrative as the good billionaire. 
the public interest billionaire. I just wish he would cut back on the number of commercials he's been running. Um, I'm speaking with Bob Henley. Uh, you can uh, find him on Twitter at Stuck Nation. That's right. uh, also online at stucknation.com. Right. Right. Uh, you can read him in Salon and the Chief Leader. Every Have week. I left anything out? No, well, let's see. This insider NJ. We're working on volume okay. these days, as you know, WBGO and anywhere else it'll have me. Is there any evidence to support the view that a successful business leader would be better as a mayor or governor or president? Because uh, we've had several wealthy business people in high office Rockefeller, Trump, Mitt Romney, Bloomberg. I'm sure there are any number of I, others. I don't think, I think Kennedy was rich. I think if you look at. Um, What's happened over the last, in the post-World War II environment, what you see is the Senate and the Washington becoming increasingly rich and a real division between the ruling class and the circumstance of the American people. Are any of the Democratic candidates middle class? I, no, I, I don't. I mean, Buttigieg might make a claim to closest. that. But but I, I think that what you see here is, uh, and this is the thing that's not reflected in the, in the corporate news media, is this across-the-board deterioration of the American circumstance. And this is not discussed because the the media primarily these days is making its money selling you things you don't need and encouraging you to take on debt that could be hazardous to you by taking exotic cruises. So they're not going to give you a reflection of what you're experiencing. What we do know is that in Iowa, let's take Iowa, which is going to be in the focal point February 3rd with the caucus, right? We know the United Way says about 40% of Iowans uh, struggle week to week uh, to make ends meet. The minimum wage is $7.25 an hour. Opiates continue to be a major issue. Uh, and they're in the same country where we've seen life expectancy decline for three years in a row. That's America. That's not the America you see reflected in the conversation. Uh, many people do recognize that underrepresentation of minorities or women in politics has been a problem when it comes to addressing their concerns. Would an absence of poor middle-class candidates present a similar problem? I think that we're already seeing that. I mean, one of the things that uh, Senator Booker is making a point, because it looks like in the debate that's coming up January 14th, I think the decision comes, Ballopedia said, I think, in like several next days, the cut comes where you either make the threshold in terms of polls and contributions. And he's or you been don't. on the edge. Uh, he's been threshold. on the edge, right. And this will be the second time that he's not in the mix on the debate stage. And the point he's making, and he, he, I think it is one that's valid, is that what's happened now with the metrics that the DNC has set up is it's kind of turned it into like an Amway thing. Well, how many folks can you get to give in in a certain hour? And then we know you're really serious. And they've nationalized the contest. How ironic is this? Is that supposedly the great genius of having Iowa and New Hampshire be the first states, although overwhelmingly white, uh, was that there was a local connection where regular people can get involved and meet their president-to-be. And in reality, by creating these thresholds, you've nationalized the race. So you have to now raise money all over the country and turn yourself into a business. And that's why Wall Street feels comfortable with you by the time you're done. And it's the reason that uh, that Michael Bloomberg uh, isn't even bothering no. with Iowa. And, and I can see the strategy. I mean, one of the things that's uh, 
I have to say that there's people in his organization who I worked with when he was mayor that um, I have great respect for. And they have done things particularly, let's look where they're effective, has been in organizing grassroots campaigns at the municipal level to respond to the gun lobby. And he has built a reservoir of goodwill with hundreds of mayors, both in the United States and around the world, because he's done the same thing with climate change. And he's putting in the field organizers who are going to be very motivated, who are making $80,000, $70,000 a year, who've been told that they're going to work past the primary. So he is building an architecture that I I think Donald Trump would have to worry about from that standpoint. He was a Republican mayor, and now he's running as a Democrat. He's he's moved, Uh, yes. What uh, was his relation with... Was his relations with unions in New York good? I would say that in the beginning, he kind of uh, had a kind of uneasy piece. But as time went on, what he was constantly saying for is, you're going to pay for your raise. Like the idea was you have to find something. And there was, again, this notion that the the public sector and pensions, these costs were out of control. And, you know, he did raise taxes early on. So it wasn't that he was, uh, he was averse to it. But in general, his uh, his attitude was that basically government needed to get out of the way of Wall Street. And, and in fact, when President Obama uh, was pushing reforms to try to uh, really come to terms with the abuses that were revealed in the great bank heist where Wall Street uh, basically raped MLK Boulevard and Main Street um, – Bloomberg actually opposed a lot of those reforms where Obama was trying to right-size the banking industry because he had this idea that they needed to be – we were in competition with London. Again, competition is very big with Mike Bloomberg. (laughs) He internalizes competition. He also believes – and I've had some time one-on-one with him – that – Everybody can succeed like he has. And he is a self-made individual. So his mythopoetic, the way he sees himself, is as a young guy, dad died early, worked his way through John Hopkins, was somebody that parked cars to get his footing in the world. He tells a great story about, and, and this was when, when he would meet with young um, idealistic kids that had come to New York to teach. I don't know what they, America teach, whatever. And he'd, he'd advise them that if you wanted to impress your, uh, your date, uh, get a six-pack and a pizza and go on the Staten Island Ferry and go back and forth. So there is that aspect of him. Uh, but there's this other aspect which has this just due deference for global capitalism that it really is a tunnel to the circumstance of tens of millions of Americans. You've written about labor issues in the New York metropolitan area, including a strike against Charter Spectrum. Haven't workers been on strike there for a couple of years now? Yeah, it's a thousand days. It was. They they have a big piece of of the uh, of cable and uh, and phone service in the metropolitan area. Here's in a piece of New Jersey and the franchise in New York City and their big players in New York State. The the story of this is is really also something about won't become as news to your listeners. The media consolidation. So you had Charter Spectrum and Charter got sixty billion dollars of debt. That's what they do. They get debt and they absorb Time Warner and Time Warner had a kind of good relationship with Local 3, but like any management labor relationship, it worked. It was successful. Um, Everybody was working through things. But then they come in. They absorb it. The FCC approves it over the objection of uh, labor groups, uh, 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 progressive groups. uh, And that was under Obama? Uh, Yeah, this was this consolidation that happened. And so then they paid their CEO, Rutledge, $100 million, and then just basically have really given the union a hard time. And now they're trying to decertify the union 
which is going to be, you know, a real bad precedent in in New York State, New York City, which is supposed to be the most union town in America. And it's really something also that's complicated by the fact that they have New York One, which is a very important news outlet. I have a lot of respect for the people that work there, some colleagues. Uh, Zach Fink, people may remember if your memory goes far enough back, he used to be part of the, the morning program here. So there's a lot of good journalism that goes on there. But they can't – the strike is being blacked out really by the media. So this is one of the rare opportunities where people are going to hear even the discussion of it. Have uh, any of New York City or New York State's political leaders taken any position on the strike? Well, it's funny. I would imagine since it's going on so long, the union is negligible at this point. Well, it, it is – there is – it comes in spasms. I would say that – uh, back in uh, the fall of 2018, uh, when uh, Governor Cuomo was coincidentally running, um, there was uh, he did uh, participate in a rally. He t- took a very uh, robust posture, muscular posture, against uh, Spectrum. He had Mr. Ward from the influential Hotel Meltel uh, union group uh, be kind of an emissary. They got close. And then Spectrum just decided, I guess, that they uh, would have uh, – it would be to their advantage to break the union, which was they're in the process of doing. And the problem here is that the National Labor Relations Board is in the hands of Trump appointees, and so it's going to be tough sledding for the local three. But New York State has a Democratic governor. New York City has a Democratic mayor. There are plenty of Democrats in elected positions in public agencies. Uh, but have, the opportunity have they to, tried to rein in charter <coughs> spectrum any more than Republicans Here's, might have. And this, this is – it gets the PSC, which regulates utilities. There was much um, – we did have uh, uh, acting Attorney General Underwood make $174 million settlement against a charter spectrum over allegations of fraud that started under Time Warner but played out on Charter's uh, watch. Uh, we did also see that uh, the PSC, Public Service Commission, tried to hold them accountable for not – following their commitment in terms of rolling out internet service and broadband service of the speeds that were promised. Uh, and there was much thought that there was feeling by labor, I think, that Cuomo, but the problem here is that Cuomo, there's a limited amount of way you can use a regulator to do that because the uh, the company can ultimately go to court. Now, what's happening now, the new strategy is Charter Spectrum's franchise is up in July in the city of New York, and there's thought of uh, the city of New York not granting a mm. renewal and creating what's going on in Chattanooga and hundreds of other cities, which is a municipally-based internet provider, which is something that Local 3 is is pushing. I haven't heard of anything about that. Well, you've heard it here. Uh, it's in the great. chief leader, so remember, read the chief leader. Isn't there also a pending contract between the transit workers and the MTA? And that right. only comes up when there's some kind of an odd action right. that hits the news. Right. And this, of course, I mean, I would say that TWU is a very healthy union because it has uh, dissidents. It's not like there's just one size fits all. So there is a vote. Tony Utano um, and the team came up with a deal, negotiated uh, with the MTA. Um, Voters, um, the union members were supposed to, I think, in the next couple of days, I think maybe even Wednesday, the vote comes in. The deadline is like tomorrow to get the mailed ballots in. It's uh, under 10% over... Uh, a few years. Um, I think it's like, is it three years? It's like, it's not, I think it's like you'll get $3 more an hour if you're making, um, uh, you know, uh, over over a couple of years, maybe it's three years. But there is a certain sense online and social media that workers feel it's not enough. We'll see, you know, in the past, the union's been able to, most recently in 2017, they passed a contract. There is this sense that, um, 
it's better to pass and approve it. I've ta- I've spoken to a number of workers who feel that uh, if um, if they reject it, they don't know what's going to happen. Whereas if they uh, firm it, then at least they uh, can budget and plan for what they're going to get. How are unions or workers in general doing in, in New York City uh, and surrounding areas compared to the the rest of the nation? Can can a city government like New York's protect workers independent of the state and federal governments? Well, I think you have to take it on a case-by-case basis. It's true that New York State's uh, embrace of the $15 minimum wage has had some positive results, and we're starting to see that happen. And in other parts of the country, although where many it's people embra- are complaining, Republicans have complained that it's going to it's hurting small businesses. Well, I think there's some data by the Financial Policy Institute and other organizations that show that it's actually stimulating the economy. One of the things that's happened since the 1970s, and this is something we've spoken about before, is that. We've been in a period of flat or declining wage growth during a period of time of unprecedented productivity. And the workers in the country have not participated in that. And over that period of time, what's happened is costs have continued to escalate. uh, And you're in a situation now where household debt is taken off. Uh, I think the Federal Reserve says that 40% of American households would be hard-pressed to find $400 without getting a loan. So, but in New York City seems to be it has it has job growth, but a lot of the jobs we're seeing come online are gig jobs where people are piecing together these provisional em- employment arrangements, casual labor relations that don't have any of the benefits, and it's created a situation where the brick and mortar conventional employers are increasingly at a disadvantage. And this is a priority of the New York State's AFLCO is to balance this because the internet uh, casual ad hoc employers who don't provide basics like social security, disability, are at a tremendous advantage to those that meet that social contract. The unions used to play a major role in politics, but can't big businesses dedicate financial resources that dwarf those of, of the workers? Don't businesses simply outspend workers and unions and campaign donations lobbying and and it's and other things it is it is it is significant and and one of the biggest problems too is that uh with the at the same time it's harder and harder to get your message out because we've seen such a uh shrinkage in the news reporting in the united states so it's it's very hard for a local three to get the word out which is kind of ironic right in the media capital when i was at an event where they had hundreds and hundreds of protesters. They had Grace Meng, uh, Congresswoman Grace Meng. They had several city council people, major political luminaries. There were just a handful of reporters, and I, I saw only one like video camera. So it's possible, unless you've got something, I hate to come back to BAI, something robust like this that's in place. These struggles happen in isolation, and it's, an, it's impossible to advance the, the common interest when it's in a void. Although BAI has financial problems because it relies on right. uh, on the regular people. Right. There aren't yet, too many businesses giving us money. No. <laughs> My guess is, uh, Bob Henley, this is Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM.
Bob Henley is my guest on today's London Lopez at Large, and we're talking about a wide range of things, pretty much um, the full spectrum of what's, forgive me for using the word spectrum again, uh, of, of politics in the city and in the country in general. Uh, we were talking about businesses and business people uh, running for office. Businesses uh, run by the super rich aren't democracies. Uh, uh, when people say they want government to be run like a business, are they saying they want less democracy? Well, I think that they're looking for some kind of accountability. And it's important to keep in mind that the common thread through all of the stories we're talking about is the way the United States has seen its debt escalate. Uh, in 2010, it was at $13 trillion. 2019, it's at $23 trillion. And this is a lot, a lot of this is driven by the defense budget, which just keeps growing exponentially. And <clears throat> This is the sense that people have that they're working more of their life and are more insecure than ever before, and yet the government is growing by leaps and bounds and is not accountable and not delivering what it's committed and required to do. Well, with with right-to-work laws in many states and uh, the decline in unions in general, most workers aren't unionized. Uh, what attitude do Americans take about how they deal with workplace management? Do we tend to just shrug our shoulders? Uh, well, there is uh, there is we good news. About We've talked about this, I think. You'll see that last year had the highest percentage of uh, strikes in job action since like the 1980s. There was a period of time under Ronald Reagan after PATCO where he mass fired all the air traffic controllers that there was a chill where uh, labor got very cautious and very risk averse. Those days are over. Um, I think historians will look back at the West Virginia's teacher strike as the equivalent of what the Patterson Silk strikes were in terms of uh, setting a new tone. In that situation, West Virginia teachers were finding that because they live in an area that has a lot of hardship and they're committed professionals, they were giving increasingly amounts of their meager wages to support the students they were teaching. And there was a grassroots movement to push back. They were successful. They organized this grassroots effort and did it in a way, and consider the politics of West Virginia, which is this deep mm. Trump territory. And, you know, you have, you know, legislature in the control of conservatives, the governor's mansion in control of conservatives and you know even Democrats they don't even have to gerrymander very right much. right it's what it is but they what they did was so brilliant is they understood that they understood the people they were serving which is what public servants often do and so what they did was when they went on strike they made sure to provide for a feeding program for all the kids because they understood that by meeting their obligations to strike they were going to leave this void in terms of the children that they love so much and so they engaged the whole community and fed these kids during that period of time and in the process turned the whole thing around, and basically they they broke the Republican legislature. When you were last here, President Trump had just named Eugene Scalia to be his third Secretary of Labor. Um, what's Scalia done in the Department of Labor since then? Well, I think that what we're seeing here, as we were talking about it before, is that there's a tone set here where if you have, and he was known, uh, he's been involved, to be fair, he's had a long history of being a Republican that has been working inside the Labor Department and then goes out into the private sector and works for management law firms whose whole raison d'etre 
is to keep unions out and when they are there to keep them on their heels. So you can imagine, and this is a theme, we talked about this before, while there's much discussion about um, having someone like Pompeo and Secretary of State who's facilitating and enabling the president's insanity, you have everybody else down in the engine room dismantling the government. So you have Betsy DeVos in education, you have, uh, you know, you have Scalia in labor. So these people have come in with the express purpose of dismantling the government because they've always believed that the that this is the enemy of the American people. So by restri- re- bringing down the footprint of bureaucracy, they're liberating the the uh, not just the those agencies, the EPA, uh, all most of the them. agencies. Hasn't the president issued a number of executive orders reducing union protections? Well, and for this is interesting. Workers? Yeah, and this is just by way of background because it's important to give people this. Um, federal unions are an interesting um, thing. It's not like the conventional union. So uh, John Kennedy signed an executive order in the early 1960-62, basically providing a framework for uh, collective bargaining, but not on wage issues, but on important issues about workplace arrangements and how the agencies would conduct themselves and terms and conditions of employment. But money, of course, was left to Congress. And so, but these unions were- led to the deep state. Well, (laughs) um, the key thing here is that um, the unions were voluntary. There was not like in the post office or in other places where you have to become Mm -hmm. a a member of the union. And so what's happened though, uh, Trump did uh, do things like, uh, one of the things that's very important is union officials who were employees of the government were given release release time historically to represent employees who got into trouble within disciplinary situations. And what he did was went directly at trying to undermine that in places where unions had offices to help their members with benefits. They actually threw them out and evicted them. They did things like impose, uh, get rid of um, commuting, telecommuting, which had been really important, something that was endorsed by both parties for years, basically to do everything they could to make it as uncomfortable as possible to get federal workers to quit. What's interesting, though, successfully, the unions just recently got Uh, I think it's 12 weeks through working the halls of Congress. And this goes to the effectiveness of unions. In a bipartisan fashion, they got a a federal um, uh, parental leave program for 12 weeks of paid leave, which is a big deal. Mitch McConnell allowed Uh, this? Well, Carolyn Maloney was a big driver of it. And then also they got a 3.1% raise. So even as Donald Trump has tried to just destroy the presence of unions in the workplace through these executive orders, the unions have still managed to uh, to work the hallway. So here's the thing: they represent two million people, and so in many, and they're also throughout the United States. And so in dis, in election, remember, Trump only won by seventy thousand votes in places like where the federal voters' employees alone in those uh, districts could be determinative. Have any of the presidential candidates spoken about organized labor or issues for American workers in general? There has been. In, I would say, I've, and uh, if you look at the fact that Tom Perez, who was, you know, preceded Scalia in his job at labor, um, as he's head of the DNC, there has been, everyone seems to be working into their stump speech somewhere in there, mm-hmm. depending on how left they are, a reference to organized labor and the need to have promoting um, uh, workers, even Tom Steyer, the billionaire, uh, reform billionaire, um, has talked about the importance of having uh, labor rebound because there is an understanding. I mean, this is kind of well known. If you look at the the data, it's pretty clear where unions were in in, in place historically. American workers did well as unions uh, were de- uh, were degraded and slipped from the national scene. That balance of power between capital and labor became crazy, and that's where we're living now. 
Healthcare is a leading concern for Americans, which is uh, one of the reasons I assume that the latest Michael Bloomberg commercial starts off <coughs> with uh, an attack on the president in that regard. Uh, but um, uh, I wonder about uh, how Trump administration and Republican attacks on the Affordable Care Act have affected us economically or in the quality of health care. Well, let's look at it. One of the things, first thing is that we're in a country, mentioned this before, where life expectancy has gone down three years in a row. That is kind of a verdict on the system. So whatever we have in place, it's the most expensive in the world. And the results are rank relatively low when you compare it to other countries of similar wealth and circumstance. If you look at what's happened, and this goes back to the Affordable Care Act, we're in the situation where uh, Democrats feel they have to be totally defensive about ACA because let's remember, let's go back to the period of time. The, health, the pharma companies and health insurance companies were very comfortable with it. It, created a, it. it forced people into these programs, and it resulted in a real windfall for big pharma and for uh, the insurance companies, and they're benefiting from that. So Americans were caught up in the whipsaw of whatever benefits were coming out of Obamacare, Trump is threatened, and then the stuff that was baked in there, the predatory capitalism stuff that permits the run-up of all these drugs, I mean, MS drugs going to 80, tens of thousands of dollars for these specialty drugs that have happened, that is a combination of, one, the, the fact that ACA was flawed, and that now we have uh, a person who is doing all the bidding of uh, – of, of Wall Street. We forget that ACA was originally a plan uh, created by the Heritage Foundation, and it was called Romney Care when George Romney was the governor of Massachusetts. Well, and, Pretty and, much the same program. And the handmaidens were people that were plucked out of industry, that came and worked on the Senate committee that put it together, and then they went back into the private sector. So it was a, as a, it was a product of, of, of a revolving door. I will say that what it did do is the preconditions, the pre-existing conditions coverage was important, and also the fact that it, it forced states to in, increase, um, um, it, it forced, uh, it, it provided an opportunity for states um, uh, to extend coverage to young adults, which is really a problem, raising the age of 26. Now, the president often brags about how prosperous the U.S. economy is and how much the stock market has risen. How good are things, in fact, for the average American? Well, I think that you have to look at the fact that the stock market uh, is not the same, uh, doesn't reflect uh, the well-being of, of, the, of the country. And uh, I think post-Wall uh, Street crash, you have a smaller percentage of Americans benefiting from Wall Street. Also, one of the things that's happened is that Wall Street's discovered this trick where it's doing things like buying back stock, which has this sense of inflating the value of stock. It's really a Ponzi scheme. So what we're seeing is that um, they are spending more and more money to buy their stock back, which inflates the value, creates like a pyramid scheme effect, and not really putting the money in R&D or in the development of new products or new efficiencies, but just in the manipulation of capital itself. And so that's where we are. And so this predatory thing that happens, this pyramid, gets to a situation where it has, it has an impact in terms of New businesses, small businesses can't get access to capital. So that's one of the things we're seeing right now. It's also pointed out that this increase in business uh, in, in the economy started with President Obama. 
and it just simply continued. Right, and I, I think industry. that, but the perception about what happened, and this was the thing about the split we've talked about between the experience of the American people and how it's projected in the media. The, the President Obama and former Secretary of State Clinton really believed there was a recovery. They really thought that they had pulled the car out of a ditch. In places like Michigan, in places like Ohio, the deterioration that happened with NAFTA and embracing of free trade and globalization, that deterioration continued and it's continuing today. And so the powers that be were surprised. Oh, we can't believe people voted for Trump. There were 200 counties that voted for President Obama twice and 20 semi congressional districts in, 2012, in 2008 and 2012. And then by 2016, hope and change was not enough because their home was in foreclosure. Now, have, hasn't there been a backlash in the Democratic Party leadership against Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and some of its other progressive uh, uh, members? Well, I think that if you talk about among the talking heads who seem to have a predilection for moderation and are always focused on us winning the mythical uh, Republican voter that we can win over, that's the way they present it, uh, they are probably upset. But I I think that um, there's an engagement that's happening. And I would say if you look at... uh, the numbers, uh, if you take, for instance, uh, Warren's numbers from fundraising, and I hate to do this using money as a metric, mm-hmm. but it is what it is. If you take uh, the money from Warren and the money from Sanders, they raise more money, I believe, together than certainly Trump raised. So I, I think, and, and if you look at social media, that, and, and also the thing that's happening with just generally, you're seeing people out in the street more all over the place. But Forbes reported on support by billionaires of the Democratic candidates, and Kamala Harris led. Of course, now she's out. Right. Uh, so uh, the the top recipients of billionaire dollars now are Joe Biden, Cory Booker, and Pete Buttigieg. Uh, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders aren't even in the top tens in terms of billionaire support, even though they're consistently among the most popular Democrats. Well, and this split between money and popularity, I guess the thing is, uh, the thought is that with enough money, you can buy popularity. And if you look at Mike Bloomberg's strategy, and again, they're very smart people putting this together, the thought is that Iowa goes for somebody, New Hampshire goes for somebody else, and South Carolina goes for Joe Biden, at which point, on Super Tuesday, with this huge amount of spending that's driving you crazy, um, he will be able to pick up and get traction, and that's that's the strategy. And it there's a potential that it could, could happen. And I guess also the thing is that we have to look at the distortion factor of what happens with um, this push to war, because in, in so I know there's a lot of people saying, that, particularly the pundit class, well, this shows that Vice President Biden's experience is just what we need. But that means that you've been in, that you have amnesia and are not aware that our lack of options was directly a consequence of the lack of imaginative American foreign policy for the last generation. I hear a lot of people saying, I'll vote for anybody who's running against Donald Trump. Right. So to some degree, it doesn't matter who winds up becoming the candidate. Well, I, I don't know. In the sense of, uh, in, in terms of mobilizing people, I mean, what's going to happen have to happen here is that thousands and thousands of people are going to have to give up a chunk of their life and get involved and organize. And, that, and if you don't have passion, if people are not engaged to believe that this is really something that can do what's required to heal the planet and turn around the course of the nation – 
they're not going to get mobilized. Bob Henley is my guest on Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. Is there an attitude among Democratic Party leaders that if a candidate doesn't have the support from from the rich that he or she can't be viable? Uh, Well, I think that it kind of morphs into a thing of, are you an enemy of the economy? And that's what has happened where uh, Elizabeth Warren took a lot of heat because they got on uh, the billionaires, get on MSNBC or particularly the business channels and talk about that these uh, Democrats, the socialists, are, are going to actually hurt the economy. And so this this has to do with, and this is very important, we take back words, economy from, the I guess, the derivation from Greek being household, right? I mean, if we go back to that root. We've let the term economy be co-opted to represent the ability of money to make money. That is not the economy of household. That is not, and, that, and that's what we confuse with when we say the economy is healthy. That's what they're talking about. Michael Bloomberg is funding his own campaign, in fact, spending more than all the other candidates combined. Uh, a new poll finds that he's now tied for third place with Elizabeth <laughs> Warren. It, right. And, and again, this has to do with the ability to position yourself in markets and drop a lot of money. Because the other thing that happens when you do the kind of mass buy that he's involved with is it also forces out and closes off space for others. You see, that's the big big boy roll of derby is when you go in and buy up all the airtime and then all you're left is marginal airspace. Sorry about that. Well, the two candidates we see most are Bloomberg first, Tom Steyer second. <laughs> right. I, I can't, don't remember seeing an ad for any of the other candidates. Well, and I will say about Tom Steyer, he does comment it from a critique of capitalism, and that is something that has to be kept well, in his mind. His big thing is term limits right now. But right. it's also, though, he has said he goes right to the heart of the predations of Wall Street, and he got it. He had an epiphany. I mean, it appears. I don't know if it's sincere, but it's certainly in the broadcast ad. Haven't several billionaires complained about how they're treated? Uh, the billionaire Schultz, hedge fund manager Leon Cooperman cried as he complained that Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren don't understand how capitalism works. Well, I, I, a problem here is that for a long time there's been, uh, with great wealth, there's been a, a quitted social status in America. And that is that as you come down your golden carriage down Atlantic Avenue, people will part and people will let you through because it's presumed that as you have great wealth, God must really like you and you must be favored. Mm-hmm. And thus we want to become like you and then God will favor us. There can come a point where people figure out that that's not really the thing that works for them. And that's where we are, this awareness of people that it's not. But a whole break off of of Protestantism was based on the idea that if you were successful, it was because God God was uh, appreciating you. Nelson Rockefeller had presidential ambitions in the 1970s. Ross Perot. He was also ran. the only man wealthy enough to die in two places. <laughs> <laughs> you have to be a certain age to get that joke. <laughs> Ross Perot. Yes, I remember. <laughs> uh, but but it didn't hurt him because it was after the fact. I mean, right. They, and anyway, right now you can sleep with a porn star, and <laughs> it doesn't right. matter. Russ Perot ran in 1992 and 96. Mitt Romney, John Kerry, the Kennedys all were very wealthy. George Washington was one of the wealthiest men in colonial America. You see a pattern? 
How are super wealthy candidates nowadays different from their predecessors? Well, I guess they don't own people, right? I mean, says that we know that could be a campaign killer if it came out that you're operating. I'm rich, a sweatshop. but I don't <laughs> have any slaves. That's right. That's right. I'm a reform candidate. Um, I, I think that the other thing here, and there's been a lot of writing about this, is interesting in the sense that we have the media, particularly because it wants access, and because the media is often run by these people that are titans of industry. Um, you have a, a kind of iconographic reference to wealthy people who are considered, who are also given the chance through their charity to make, uh, decide what parts of the world they want to save. And when they give, right, when they are philanthropists and give, this is considered reinforcement of their superior character. People don't understand that the way great wealth works is you have to give away a certain amount to hold on to it. And so we've given them this oversized space at the table in keep institutions, higher education, like we saw with the Sacklers with, with art. Uh, there is, though, I think, a growing awareness that it matters, the degree to which people who have these great fortunes, that they're especially like the opioid scandal, when it's revealed that it's, it's predatory, then they lose their credibility. And that's what's happening. Just like every institution has gone through this thing, whether it be the casting director, whether it be the Hollywood producer, whether it be the Catholic priest, whether it be the billionaire, your behavior now in this heightened environment of social media is, is under scrutiny, and you can lose your throne very quickly. Are wealthy politicians more conservative than they were in the 70s and 80s? Uh, and if they're more conservative, does that simply reflect a more conservative United States? I, I think that there's a there's been a kind of craven uh, uh, projection of, of wealth to the point that it's something that you're not discreet about. And and so it's a kind of what you see is this flashiness of which Donald Trump really represents the, the climax of, right? And the idea that um, so you don't have to be discreet and it's you got to throw your weight around, otherwise why have it? And so um, and you and you see this, for instance, in, in the case of institutions, it's like what happened with the cheating scandal, where parents in Hollywood who already had an advantage had to put money to use to try to get their kids to get special treatment. We're constantly bathed in these accounts of people cooking the books for their own advantage. Well, Bloomberg was a Republican when he was mayor of New York. Is the line between the parties more fluid than we have thought? Well, in terms of we what's have, happening— And we have some Democrats moving over to—well, we constantly have this throughout right, right, right. our history. People it's changing pragmatism. Their I mean, I, I think that in the case of, like— um, What's happened with uh, Van Drew in those cases, that's very narrow to the, the case of the individual because of a certain set of circumstances. In terms of the, one of the things that's happened, though, is that the, the, the Republican Party has lost its ideological range because it's now captive under the spell of Donald Trump. So it doesn't have – and this has happened over our lifetime, right? We remember Jacob Javits. We remember – liberal Republicans. We remember Clifford Case. That's all gone. And so what you have is this concentration of folks who have a certain worldview that uh, is uh, xenophobic, uh, that is one that uh, uh, wants to attack immigrants, that sees um, anything different as a threat to the republic. And then you have this more amor amorphic group of people that aren't in either party, and that's where that's where really the battle is, the people that aren't engaging in any political party. With growing inequality, growing power of billionaires, big business, and declining rights for workers, do you think the U.S. is looking less like a democracy? 
I think that that um, that's, some social scientists have talked about neo feudalism. I, I think that that's if you actually look at the structure of what's happened, that we've been at that place for a, a long time. I mean, even going back to what happened with the election in 1960 with John Kennedy with the suspicious votes in Cook County, going to what happened with the, the Electoral College itself, which was a framework that was uh, to give southern slave states um, leverage. Uh, this has been a rigged game for a long time. Uh, what, I, what I do think has happened is that you have a situation where uh, – uh, for a long time, people were uh, disengaged. We saw participation drop. We saw people feel that politics didn't uh, didn't matter, and it turned them off. Just here in New York State, though, we did see all of a sudden in 2018 the turnout was historic, and I mean in terms of decades, and an engagement by young people in a way we hadn't seen before, and that resulted in the House going to Democrats. So I think people are increasingly more engaged both at the workplace and at town hall. On the other hand, you look at history, uh, getting back to the big news story of the day, Ronald Reagan capitalized on the Iran-Contra crisis during the right. 1980 campaign. George H.W. Bush and George W. both tried uh, to with wars in Iraq, and people and said— And Clinton had his own wag-the-dog thing, yeah, too. You yeah. can't, shouldn't change horses in midstream. Right. It's a tool in the tool chest. <laughs> so— uh, Democrats are often cast as weak on military policy. Are Democratic candidates, especially those positioning themselves as centrist, doing anything to counter that label? I think that entire framework has kind of been thrown out. And and the way the reason why I say that is that we had after nine eleven a further notice war, and at that point it didn't really matter the, in terms of key positions when it came to uh, President Obama and President Bush. There was really no distinction between their prosecution of the global war on terrorism. If you look at the proclivities, and I remember speaking at some folks that were intelligence and NYPD, and at first there was great anxiety that they're gonna have this liberal college professor take over uh, from George Bush, who was, had no problem with doing drone strikes and killing uh, people, selected targets. And they were so happy in the first couple of quarters, like this president, really Obama is up to the challenge of incinerating people remotely. Oh, great, like the Republic is in good hands. Um, and, and I remember his decision early on to shoot that Somali pirate. You remember that mm -hmm. was you know a key decision he made. So, the, and, and if you saw, look what happened, for instance, with Donald Trump though, and this is where it changes up the whole model and this architecture you described is kind of fallen by the wayside. In South Carolina, remember, uh, in the primary in 2016, um, Trump ran against U.S. war in Iraq and accused Bush's father of lying about it, and he won there. Bob Henley, uh, you can read him in Salon, the chief leader, hear him on WBGO, He's, uh, and, and regularly on our show. Right. And it's always a pleasure talking with Thanks you, Thanks so much. Did I leave anything now? No, I think you did a great job. Thanks so much. Thanks, Reggie. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to Hugh Sansom, who produced this segment. If you're new to our program and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're available as an iTunes podcast. And don't forget to check out Leonard Lopit at Large on Facebook and Twitter and our website, LeonardLopitAtLarge.com, where you can find links to all of our past shows. Join us again tomorrow when Dr. Sarah Hill will discuss her book, This Is Your Brain on Birth Control, The Surprising Science of Women, Hormones, and the Law of Unintended Consequences. And we'll see you then. And a reminder that uh, we are back on the air, uh, working, uh, we hope, uh, into uh, our 60th anniversary. 
but uh, money problems are always an issue. Cash flow is always an issue. And we hope that you will consider becoming a WBAI buddy, $10 or more, to help us to ensure that we're here next month and the month after and the month after that. You give us a call at 516-620-3602 or go to WBAI.org and follow the instructions. And we hope you'll do it in the name of of Leonard Lopez at large or uh, the station in general. And uh, again, the reminder of the number 516-620-3602. Please call and support this important institution.